Welcome back to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Today on the show, what do you need for a team to succeed? Today, we're going to start with something super exciting, meetings. Just kidding. We all know meetings can be tedious and never-ending. But still, meetings are crucial when you're working on a team. You have to have them. So how can you make them worthwhile? Turns out there's a science to having an effective meeting, and it's the same science that's behind having great team dynamics. So scientifically speaking, what makes a team really great? We find that some teams exceed the sum of their parts and some teams fall far below uh, what you'd expect given who is on the team. That's Anita Williams-Woolley, an associate professor at the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University. She studies collective intelligence, which is the type of intelligence that emerges from team collaboration. In 2010, Anita and her colleagues published a groundbreaking paper in the journal Science. The paper was all about the specific circumstances that lead to great teams. We were really interested in answering the question in the paper of, is there an ability for teams to work together that is really different from the individual abilities of members? Up until the time that we started this line of research on collective intelligence, when researchers talked about intelligence in teams, they were largely talking about the intelligence of the individual members, maybe looking at the average intelligence in the group, um, the intelligence of the smartest person in the group, etc. And we really had the intuition uh, that there might be something uh, apart from that that really characterizes how well group members work together. So Anita and her colleagues went on to study hundreds of groups to see what makes them work best. They expected to find factors related to how cohesive the group felt and how motivated they were as a collective. But that didn't end up being the case. One thing that was related to collective intelligence that we didn't necessarily expect was that the proportion of women in the group was uh, a positive predictor. It turns out that groups that had team members that were more highly socially perceptive were more collectively intelligent. And women, on average, tend to have greater amounts of of those kinds of skills. They score higher on tests of social perceptiveness, for example. And then the third thing that we found had to do with the conversation patterns in the group. We found that groups that communicated more and also that communicated more equally among the members were more collectively intelligent. So in other words, if you had somebody dominating the conversation, that group would be significantly less collectively intelligent. Let's break that down. Anita and her colleagues found three main factors that lead to increased collective intelligence. One, having more women on the team. That directly correlates to factor two, having people who are socially perceptive and understand the emotions of their colleagues. And three, a team that has equal speaking opportunities for all its members. And that third reason? That's because on most teams, no single person has all the information needed to solve any one problem. When everybody has the chance to contribute to a conversation, you raise the chances that the necessary information surfaces. 
there is a cognitive style that is characteristic of, say, engineers and scientists, another cognitive style that's characteristic of artists, um, and, and a third cognitive style that's more uh, verbal, um, characteristic of writers and, and people who work in the humanities. And so engineers and, and scientists break things down into parts and are tend to be very analytical um, in their thinking, whereas the artists tend to be much more holistic. But it's not just the diversity of perspectives that improves problem solving. It's also this important next step. Team leaders need to actively create an environment where people's different cognitive strengths are acknowledged and appreciated. In an earlier study, we looked at diversity uh, in teams, specifically cognitive diversity. And what we found was that Teams that were cognitively diverse, such that they had experts, you know, in the areas that uh, were involved in the problem solving, they actually performed worse if they were left to just discuss the problem on their own. But if we started off the group by getting them to talk about uh, what the areas of expertise were, how they could be brought to bear on the problem, how maybe different people with different expertise would have to combine what they know to really solve the problem, then those teams performed much better than the teams that were not diverse in terms of expertise. So you need this combination of both the expertise in the team, but also the right norms and structure for the team to actually make use of that expertise. In other words, for a great team, you need the right people and the right norms. That would be setting the norm that Um, you know, that we all speak equally and having some way of enforcing that norm. uh, Because what our data on social perceptiveness suggests is that there may be some people who just don't realize that they're dominating the conversation. So you have to have some way of correcting um, if, if that's happening. Another benefit of a cognitively diverse team is not just what happens during a meeting, but what happens before a meeting. Having people with many backgrounds on a team can actually lead to better preparation. When groups are more diverse, we do find that they actually engage in more careful, effortful information processing and anticipation of needing to talk to people who are different. So, for example, in jury decision-making, Sam Summers has done some research that has found that diverse juries more carefully process racially relevant information if the jury is more racially diverse than when it's homogenous. And there are real examples of corporations taking advantage of the benefits of diversity by hiring employees from unique professional and cognitive backgrounds. I went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis and after graduation I served as a service warfare officer for five years. I was on a ship and then I did a a kind of non-conventional um, security tour. I spent most of my time between those um, two roles in the Northern Arabian Gulf doing um, anti-piracy missions, security missions, training Iraqi Marines and, and Navy sailors. That's Meekin Bennett, Vice President of Institutional Operations at Morgan Stanley. And this is Noah Perlman. Immediately before this, uh, I was working at the United States Drug Enforcement Administration uh, as their general counsel in the New York office. Noah is now a lawyer at Morgan Stanley. And as for Simon Bound, the global director of research at Morgan Stanley, well, he certainly didn't start off in research. I was what was called a clearance diving officer in the Royal Navy. So we did minefield clearance. 
in practical terms, what does that mean? So in 91, we did the clearance of the beaches off the coast of Kuwait. So we did underwater um, EOD or explosives ordnance disposal. And that was hard and uh, at times interesting, um, but incredibly rewarding work. When it comes to hiring, Simon values people with a diverse set of skills and perspectives. Looking at such a broad array of investment questions by definition requires us to hire people with very different skill sets. So a Taiwanese economist has a very different skill set than an analyst looking at bulk chemicals in the US. That's incredibly powerful because that diversity of experience and diversity of skill set and diversity of opinion is what can get us to the right answer for clients. And once you have a diverse group of people in the room, you have to make sure those voices are heard. We run a totally meritocratic organisation and a strong culture that emphasises the importance of meritocracy. What does that mean? Running a meritocracy means that our juniors and our mid-rank analysts are happy to speak up. And it's incredibly important within research that we have a diversity of opinion and a diversity of view because the capital markets are too smart for all of us by definition. So if one person or one group believes that they have the view on the markets or the view on a stock or an asset class, by definition, they are likely to be wrong and we need to be constantly questioning what we do. So a meritocratic culture that enables juniors, middle-ranking senior people to question each other is incredibly important. Simon knows it's hard to have his ideal meritocratic environment actually come to life. The fact that the research department communicates with colleagues all over the globe doesn't make it any easier. So how does he do it? Just like Anita suggested, he establishes strong norms. We're succeeding because of the strength of the Morgan Stanley culture and the culture of the the research department that facilitates this collaboration and communication that's incredibly powerful. And that gets back to diversity because a Japanese analyst has a very different perspective on a stock than a European analyst, than a US analyst. And that's what provides the research department with its greatest strength. So imagine a successful meeting at any workplace. People with different backgrounds and cognitive strengths come together and really work through a problem successfully. Now let's take a few steps back. How did all these people get to that room? The answer? They were carefully recruited and hired. I think people expect, you know, this to be a place where economic majors and people graduating business school come. Sure, welcome those people, but over half of the people that join us each year come from very different backgrounds. That's Jeff Brodsky. He's the chief HR officer at Morgan Stanley. They're music majors, they're theater majors, they're psychology majors, they're uh, from all over the world, they're from um, all different kinds of programs, they're engineers. And, you know, we really believe that people with different backgrounds have different experiences. So when we talk about leading with exceptional ideas and we talk about putting our clients first, you don't get there if you don't have people that approach the same problem very differently. And as a result, I think, you know, you take a lot of smart people that have done a lot of different things and it creates this, you know, outsized opportunity to deliver in a really significant way. Remember our original question, what do you need for a team to succeed? 
the answer is both diversity and creating the right environment for diversity to flourish. Here's Anita Williams-Woolley from Carnegie Mellon again. There definitely needs to be some way for the group to integrate uh, those different perspectives effectively. And what we know from, from the general research on this is that most groups left to their own devices are not very good at that. So there needs to be something else in place to enable the group to, to make use of those differences. Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the research discussed in this podcast and listen to previous episodes, you can check out morganstanley.com slash ideas or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Till next time.